Welcome to the Training Ground Guru podcast in association with Huddle. For this episode, Simon Austin has been speaking with former England rugby coach Brian Ashton, who led the side to the final of the 2007 World Cup. For the last few years, Brian has been a coach educator and mentor for the Premier League, working with teams including Manchester United, Manchester City, and Everton. He spoke to Simon about the lessons he's learned from five decades in coaching. Thanks very much for joining us on the podcast, Brian. You're welcome. Looking forward to it. Yeah. It's going to be a little bit of a mix, I think, of this is your life and uh, your coaching philosophy. All right. Okay. Interesting then. And I'm actually, I'm going to see if I can get this share screen to work and show you the first uh, image. I've got, I think, six images to use as kind of prompts as we go along. Can you, can you see that, Brian? Well, that's Lancaster Royal Grammar School. Yes, yep. That's my old boarding house. Just take me back to there then, Brian. So you won, um, would you call it a scholarship or the 11 plus to get in there? It was, it was a scholarship, yeah, a scholarship that was aligned to the 11 plus exam. I didn't have to do any extra, extra examination. Um, I, I won this, I'm looking back, I'm pretty, I'm absolutely sort of 99.9% convinced I was given the scholarship because the scholarship was called the Ashton Scholarship. Really? Yeah. I actually, I don't think I lived up to the scholarship values in my time at the school, uh, certainly on the academic side, any stretch of the imagination. And it was a hell of a smack in the face when I got there because I'd sort of been top dog at the junior school. Mm. And when I got there, I found everybody was as clever as me. And right. A lot of them were far more clever than I was. So from going from being a well, not a big fish in a small pond at primary school, but you you know the analogy. I was suddenly one of a 900 pupils in a massive grammar school from the age of 11 to 18. So mm. that was a bit of a cultural shock, that. Yeah. yeah. And how did it actually come to an end there? I know, I know you told this story when we did an article with you a few years ago. Yeah. Um, I think, actually, without sounding arrogant, I think my the lifestyle of my friends back in Lee in South Lancashire sort of made me slightly jealous of what they were able to do and what, what they could do and what I couldn't do by the time they got to the age of 15, 16. And so I suppose that may well have been at the back of my mind anyway. I'd never had any thoughts whatsoever of, of leaving the school. I was in the sixth form. I was, I'd, I'd not achieved academically what I should have achieved because it wasn't my major interest. Sport was my major interest at the school. Um, but I'd done okay. And I managed to get in the sixth form. I was well on track to doing A-levels. And then uh, it was the first day back of the summer term when I was in the lower six. God knows what that is now, year 11, something yeah. like that. I don't yeah. know. All these yeah, 10, isn't it, I think? Yeah. I don't know. Why I'm changing yeah. the names of things like this. Yeah. Um, and um, I was sat at lunch and the, the cricket captain, who was, funnily enough, was my halfback partner in the rugby team, came along and said, oh, we've got our first practice, Nets practice today. He said, Nets practice in full whites. Lancaster Royal Grammar School was and still is one of the top cricketing schools in the north of England. And they said, practice in full whites. Now, I played for the team a year longer than he had. I played when I was 14 in the first 11. Right. And I said to him, I said, look, my... Trunk's not arrived. We didn't have a car from a working-class background, so my my uh, trunk with all my gear in travelled by road, and for some reason or other, hadn't arrived. I said, so I, I won't be able to come out in full whites, but I'll get as close as I can. And, and for some reason, I don't know why, whether he's trying to stamp his authority on things, being a new captain and whatnot, he said, well, if you don't come out in full whites, then um, you probably won't get picked to play on Saturday. <laughs> I thought... Oh, this is ridiculous. You know, what difference does it make? What I'm trained, practicing in, etc. And I, as I played two years already in the first 11. Anyway, I went back up to my study. And for some reason or other, I don't know, something just snapped. And I thought, this is ridiculous, this. I'm not having this. I, just, I packed a rucksack, all spur of the moment stuff. No thought behind this whatsoever. Packed a rucksack, walked out of the door of the building that we've just seen on the screen. Turn right down into town towards the railway station. 
I must have passed 10 members of staff coming up the hill the other way. Not one of them even acknowledged me, even though I was walking away from school during school time. And the, I mean, some of them I knew. Mm. <laughs> um, so I went to the railway station. I caught the train to Wigan, got off the train in Wigan, caught the bus to Lee, got off the bus in Lee bus station, and suddenly what I'd done struck me. I thought, what the hell, Brian, have you done now? You, your father, mother and father, are going to be absolutely furious because they, they sacrificed a hell of a lot to put me through boarding school. I mean, the scholarship helped, obviously, but it was all sorts of other things. All the add-on bits and pieces like uh, clothing and sports clothing, normal clothing, actually, to pay for. Um, so I'd look for an escape route. I was, I was clear thinking enough to do that. And I, I spotted one in the corner of the bus station called the Regal Cinema. <laughs> so I thought, well, that's as good a place to hide as any, because most of the time you're in there, it's in the dark. <laughs> so I, I went in there because I got, I, I got some pocket money um, that I'd taken back to school with me. So I was, for a young lad of 16, I was pretty rich. So I wandered into the Regal Cinema, bought, I've no idea what film was on, bought down, sat down. The film started and it was... Cliff Richard's Summer Holiday, which, with all due respect to Sir Cliff Richard, I think he is now, was one of the worst films I think I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> but as I was petrified of, of um, confronting my mother and father, I watched it three times through. So I watched it from half past two in the afternoon till it finished at 10 o'clock at night. Then, of course, I had to leave the cinema because we're closing it down. So I wandered towards home. And one of my friends saw me and said, well, what are you doing here? You went back to school two days ago, didn't you? And I explained what had happened. And I said, I'm absolutely petrified of seeing my father because he'll, he'll go berserk. Anyway, he said, I'll do it for you. So he went and yeah. went and saw my father. My father came out and for the only time in his life, I saw him cry. He oh. came and wrapped his arms around me. And he was upset and this and it set me off. And I oh. found out subsequently why that was. Because the grammar school had put out... Um, a Lancashire police alert for me. Oh right. Oh wow. Yeah. So anyway, when I got um, when I got in the house, they phoned the police station. The police came over just to check it was me and this that and the other. And I thought, God, I'm not going to get in trouble with the police as well, are they? And when they said, Where have you been? When I told them where I've been and what I've been doing, all they did was burst out laughing. They said, That's punishment enough for you. <laughs> Watching some holiday three times through. <laughs> So the school expelled you then for doing that? No, I went back the following day and the headmaster didn't want me back in, yeah. yeah. Oh, right. Okay, well. I don't think pretty it, extreme. But... Yeah, I don't think it would happen these days, yeah. But, yeah. No. And what did you do after that? I went to Liga on my school. Oh, okay, right. Uh, so I, did, I, I redid my low six year and did the same subjects and did two years at Liga on my school. That, that was pretty interesting for me from a rugby point of view um, because one of the members of staff there who taught biology. It was a guy called Bev Risman. And he'd signed professional rugby league terms for Lee. Uh, I was teaching at the school and he was our rugby coach. Bev Risman had played, I think I'm right, in 1959 British Lions. He played for the British Lions before he played for England, I think. And he played for the British Lions when he was still at Manchester University as a student. And he played in the first test and broke his leg. Because the tours were so long in those days, he scored the match-winning try in the fourth test. So he'd come back from a broken leg and got back in the test team again. Oh, wow. Right. Yeah. Oh, interesting. And I know when you spoke at the uh, Cohesive Coaching event we did, you had a shirt that said, what was it? Non-conformist. Or it had a bit more than that on it. Proudly non-conformist, was it? Something like Something that? Something like that. Yeah. 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 Um, so has that been a theme through your life, do you think? Because like there you stood up for what you believed in. You didn't want to just go yeah. with the flow. Um, is that something that's continued, do you think, throughout your career and your life? Uh, not entirely. I think possibly in my personal life it has, but certainly not in my, initially in my teaching. I was a school teacher initially in my teaching and my early, early efforts at coaching, and, you know, underlining efforts, because that's all they were. They were efforts. They weren't very successful ones. Um, I was particularly conformist and you know if, if you were to ask me to describe yourself Brian as a young teacher I started teaching in 1969 
in a secondary modern school in Preston. Oh, right. And a young coach as well. Um, I would say I was very much a command control sort of coach, very authoritative, dictator-like, very much wanted to be in charge, um, controlled everything in the environment, told the players what they had to do, uh, didn't engage with them particularly at all about asking, did they understand or allow them the opportunity, why do we need to do this? So that was a bit of a conflict between the way that I played the game in those days, which was pretty nonconformist because I know you can't see it on screen, but I'm about five foot six and a half. I was about 11 stone wet through when I played and there were still some big lads knocking about in those days. So I had to use a bit of wit, imagination, invention to keep out of the way of them. Yeah. Uh, so I had to play in a, in a way that not everybody else played, put it that way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And I've got another uh, picture here, actually. Do you recognise that, Brian? That's King's School Bruton. Right. And is that where your philosophy changed then, would you say? No, it had changed before that, right. to be honest. So I kept coaching this command control fashion without much success, I might admit. And I taught the same way in the classroom as well. And there were reasons for that, which maybe we ain't got time to go into. I don't know why. But I think a lot of young coaches and young teachers go down the same route um, to begin with. I mean, the, the biggest controlling factor on that is the fear of not being in control yeah. um, as, a young, as a young member of staff and a, a young coach. But the King School Bruton one was, uh, was it a culmination of things? It was certainly a, a big step forward on the path to changing my coaching philosophy. Uh, that had actually changed in 1975. I'd just come back from as a player on the England tour of Australia, and I was I was almost 30, and um, I got this opportunity to go and play in France for a club that is now called Clermont Auvergne. It was AS Montferrand, so I went out there for a couple of years and played out there, and then um, then I went from there. I went to play. Played for three years in Italy. So I was five years away from the country. Absolutely sensational. Everyone should do it in their lives. Go and live in a country where you don't speak the language, where the lifestyle is different and everything else around it's different as well. It's a great, uh, great learning tool for life, I think. Um, but the, the reason I'm telling that particular story is that I met a guy out there who was very, very influential in terms of how I changed my um, look at the methodology and philosophy of coaching. Uh, it's a guy called Pierre Vilpre. Mm. Got a picture of him here, actually, Brian. So that's Vilpre playing for the Barbarians. He was um, he was a French fullback in the uh, let me think when would it be the late sixties, early seventies. Probably the first genuine counter-attacking fullback in world rugby. Right. Um, so he was sort of a pioneer in that sense. He had an educational background as well. And he'd, uh, he, he was played, played at Toulouse, Stad Toulouse, and then started coaching at Stad Toulouse. And I played against the Stad Toulouse side um, when I was out in France. And the thing that struck me about these guys was that they, always, they kept the ball alive as much as they could and they hardly ever went on the ground, which is completely the opposite way that I'd experienced rugby. Because uh, in rugby union those days, they spent half their life messing about on the ground. Well, they still do, which obviously puts you out of the game. Um, but they, and I, it fa just fascinated me. And um, when I went to play in Italy, coincidentally, I mean, and completely, um, obviously there's no, no connection whatsoever, um, he was appointed the technical director of the Italian Rugby Federation. So actually, the three years I was in Italy, I spent quite a lot of time in and around him. Uh, got to know him really well. We became close friends. I saw him coach. Was absolutely fascinated by his coaching philosophy, which is all about problem-solving, decision-making, um, setting scenarios for the players to interpret and, and solve, etc. So it's very much a player-engaged, dual leadership, yeah. excuse me, sort of situation. When I came back to England in 1980, uh, kept up the connection with him and went to visit him twice at Toulouse in pre-season training to watch him operate. And then uh, when I was teaching at Stonyhurst College uh, in Lancashire, I invited him over and he came over to spend some time with me over there as well. 
I think he was actually on doing a coaching tour of England at the time. Oh, he spent okay. two or three days of it. So, so I got to know him really well. And he was the, it was his influence that suddenly made me realise there is a different way of approaching coaching. And it looks to be a more effective way because it almost looks as though it's coaching. The, instead of coaching isolated drills and techniques and, and putting together systems and structures, it was more akin to the reality of the game, the fluidity of the game, the rhythm of the game, the tempo of the game, decision-making in the moment that players have to make rather than waiting from for instructions from the touchline or at half-time, etc. And it st struck me as, as, you know, from an educational point of view, if nothing else, this is a far more effective way of, of getting the team to, A, become better and, B, perform better. Yeah, definitely. And is that because the player will feel more engaged to start with and also then because they're the ones who are going to be making the decisions on the pitch, as you say, and you can't predict what's going to happen in the game, so they're going to have to work it out. Kind of two yeah. things. Sorry? So, so it's kind of two things. They feel more engaged in it, and also they're going to be decision-making on the pitch. Absolutely. Uh, the first one's an interesting one because I've certainly come across players at all levels who don't want to be engaged. Right. In that. They want to be told what to do, and that continued right the way through to coaching at senior level of England. Uh, players who were happy to be told what to do. Um, I suppose, I don't know, maybe in the back of their minds, if things went wrong, then they got somewhere else to look. Someone just, just following a game plan mm. that someone else put together, um, which has always struck me as being a bit of a nonsense, to be honest. Um, but maybe that's something we can talk about a bit further on. Yeah, yeah. Um, in terms of game plan versus framework. Mm. Um so, yeah, so in terms of the engagement, I, my, my feeling is that it's, that it's a good thing. And obviously, once the, once the whistle blows, then the people who have control of what happens next are the people out on the field. You could be, you be the most magical coach the world's ever seen, but the impact you can have once the game starts is very limited. And I think, I think I'm right in attributing this quote to Pep Guardiola about three years ago when he said in an interview that when the players, once the players cross that white line, they're in charge of what happens next, which is, you know, is, is very much the case. And as you said, quite rightly, it's, it's very difficult to predict from minute to minute what's going to happen in a game. So there's a lot of volatility about it. And, um, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a good old army saying, a military saying that no plan survives its first contact with the enemy. Well, I've, I've been in plenty of games as a player and a coach where that's very much been the case. After 10 minutes, you're thinking, wow, this is not what we expected for a whole variety of reasons. Um, you know, reasons that your team and yourself uh, may be, have instigated or it may be the opposition playing in a different way or playing better than you expected or going through a purple patch in the middle of the game. It might be a referee who's interpreting the game not as you think it should be interpreted, so it becomes a real diversion, distraction, and all, all sorts of different things um, could obviously affect personal dramas uh, in the middle of a game, personal dramas, players getting sent off, players getting yellow-carded, red-carded, your best player going off injured, and things like that. I mean, there's only one thing that's happening in the middle of a game that you just can't predict. Definitely. I've got a little video, actually, the first one, which uh, touches on that. You, so you'll recognise who that is. Um, and he recorded this before we did that cohesive coaching event. Um, but yeah. I think I couldn't get the projector to work, so we never played it. So this will be the first uh, airing of it. So here he is, Danny Cipriani. Hello, cohesive coaching. Uh, I just want to make a small point on uh, the, the greatest coach and best mentor I've had in Brian Ashton. And it was often because from a, a young age, the drills that we would be doing would all be game specific, game scenarios um, that would create us to really have to think on our feet. Sometimes you'd um, put the emphasis on the defence, so they had probably more numbers in the defensive line than you would in a game. But what that would do is create ways for you to break it down. And if you could find a way to break it down when it's overly stacked in their favour, then obviously we're going along the right path. And uh, then afterwards, the way we analyse it, it would be a two-way conversation, but it would never feel 
um, either condescending or it would never feel like dictatorship. So the two shifts of the spectrum were never like that. It was always a two-way conversation where people were learning and taking note. Um, some of the best memories and I feel like it's really what um, helped me in my development from a younger age. So, yeah, that's a very good explanation from the player's point of view. Um, yeah, far better explanation than I gave. It's interesting, that was um, that particular group. I instigated, I was asked to instigate the England Rugby National Academy. Yeah. Um, and Danny was the youngest member of it, came in at the age of 15. Uh, I know he's not everybody's cup of tea for a whole variety of reasons, but he's one of the most talented games players. And I remember at school, I coached football, cricket, rugby, basketball, volleyball, etc. One of the most talented games players I've ever come across in my life. Right. Oh, uh, so he was very good at other sports then, other than rugby? Yeah, I think I think he had trials with Tottenham Hotspur. He could have played cricket for Surrey. All right. Um, so, huh. um, but the key thing there was, you know, what he, 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 he mentioned was the, the two-way thing. You know, coaches can learn from players as well as players learn from coaches. They've got a different perspective on things. They see the game in a different way out on the field than you do stood on the touchline or sat in the stand. And they very often pick up on cues and things and emotions in the middle of a game that you just don't feel. Mm. So it, it's really important to engage and listen to what they've got to say. Now, it doesn't mean they're dominating the environment, but it means for me it means that as a coach you're playing a far more influential role in, in improving the group if you actually engage and listen to their ideas, their thoughts. Is that something that's maybe been overlooked with Danny a little bit? Do you think that his ability to read the game and he maybe makes that look easy and picking the right options and making the right decisions? Yeah, I think, you know, in terms of game intelligence, he's right up there, I think, with players that I've coached. There's no doubt about that. I think probably that in itself might be a threat to some coaches because they want to impose the way they want to play. Yeah. Very much, no, look, let's have a framework. Let's build a framework. This is how we want to operate. We'll operate within this framework. And the best players do operate like this, but we'll, you know, if we have to, we'll find a different way once the game started. Mm. If, the, if the initial way that we thought we were going to play to be successful isn't working, then, mm. we just, you know, what's the definition of insanity from Einstein is continue to do the same thing over and over again and expect a different result. Mm. Well, for me, that can be a game plan that doesn't work. You, yeah. know, you keep following it, and then you get to the end of the game, so we've lost. So why didn't you change the damn thing halfway through? Yeah. And unfortunately, a lot of coaching, um, in my experience, doesn't allow that to happen in terms of preparation. We prepare to play like this. We don't prepare to play, what if that doesn't work? We don't look at the worst case scenarios. All right, this is how we want to play, but if it doesn't work, then what we're going to do? And have we got the tools and the resources, etc., to be able to switch direction in the middle of a game and play in a different way? I find it very interesting as well. Danny's often described as a maverick or a troublemaker, but kind of him aside, whether we're good enough at accommodating people who maybe don't fit that kind of team structure. Um, and they may, I don't know, they're loners or they're a bit more introverted and whether we accommodate those people well enough, you know, generally. Yeah, I think, interesting, that the word maverick, because I've been often described as a maverick coach. Yeah. Which I object to, only because I think mavericks are people that do do their own thing and have no regard whatsoever for the greater good of the group or the team. So you know, I, I, I'm trying to think of another word. A player, I suppose, are the next factor. But yeah. For me, the maverick doesn't necessarily, he's not, he's not one who wants to get his hands dirty when things don't go well. And I think in a, in a team game, everybody's got to have that, that sort of desire and passion to say, right, we're in trouble here. We're going to dig our way out of it. And, and everybody's got to buttle down and get stuck in there. And it's very often, it's not so much the maverick player, maybe maverick's the wrong word. Uh, distinction between maverick, maverick's the guy with the X factor, but it's the disruptive player who's a maverick but doesn't want to get involved when things go wrong. He says, right, were you 10 in football or you 14 in rugby? You sort all this shit out. Okay. Then when it's all sorted out, I'll come back in and weave my magic. 
but I don't, I don't want to dirty my hands with things that below me. I don't want to demean myself getting involved in that. That's your role, that, to make me look good. Mm. Um, and I, it never struck me that, I mean, I don't want to spend the whole podcast talking about Danny. No, no. Struck, never struck me that he was remotely like that. No. Was, yeah, so. I, I mean, yeah. you, you'll know this better than me again, but... I think some coaches don't like being questioned either or challenged and you'll be labelled a troublemaker because you do that. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right there. I mean, some coaches don't allow time for questioning like I didn't when I had my first 10, 15 years of my coaching and teaching. You know, I was a guy with the, in the, te- in the classroom, I was a guy with a degree. I wore the gown and um, on the coaching field, I was a guy with a tracksuit with a clipboard, very often a load of rubbish written on it. I whistled around my neck so I could interfere with practice whenever I felt like it. I became one of the chief whistleblowers in the northwest of England when I was the young coach. Um, but it's, it's absolutely right. And and again, I think it's it's that fear of being asked a question you don't know the answer to. And there's, there's nothing wrong with that. Nobody knows everything. Um, but it's getting your head around that, it's having that mindset. Look, we're all here to improve together. Um, it's not just about me. It's not just about you guys. It's about both of us. So, I mean, logic dictates there's got to be two-way conversations. Yeah. And they've got to be allowed to ask questions as well. Question, why are we doing this? You know, it's not only me asking a player's question, why did you do what you did? It's also allowing them to say, why, in, in a respectful manner, 13 months ago, I was before the coronavirus hit the world, I was in Australia and I was talking to um, John Eales, who captained the 1999 Australian World Cup winning team. And we were just talking about team cultures and things like that. And he said they, they built up a, cu- a culture of what he called respectful challenge, where the coaches challenged the players, but they did it in a respectful manner. Uh, but the players were allowed to challenge the coaches, providing they did it in a respectful manner as well. And that went right the way through the whole organisation over a period of time. So coaches challenge coaches, players challenge players, players challenge coaches, vice versa, etc. But it's all done in a respectful manner. And he, he said it created what he called a vibrant family. Um, and family, obviously, for most people, is the strongest bond they ever feel in their life, far stronger than a team. Yeah. Um, but the vibrancy was the fact that the, this challenge was allowed. A cha- it was a respectful challenge with a view to continual improving the way that they performed. Does that mean that you strip away hierarchies then? Because uh, a lot of people like hierarchies, don't they? It oh, they love you... it. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, especially people at the top. They think yeah. it's fantastic. Yeah. Because yeah. uh, they get paid more for a start. Yeah. But I think I always felt when I was in a position of, of head coach um, or in charge of, of anything really, head of department in teaching or whatever, that you were ultimately you were accountable. Whatever happened, you were someone has to be accountable. And if you're head of anything, you are accountable. Your head coach, your manager, you're accountable. But I think um, you can't be accountable for everything. You can't be accountable for things that happen from minute one to ninety in a game. You can't be accountable for somebody missing a penalty. That's not your fault as a coach or a manager. That that's just a ridiculous notion that. And, and a lot of it is driven by the media and by people who don't know much about games and, and very little about coaching. Yeah. So the players have got to take some sense of responsibility as well. Um, but the, as a manager and a coach, you've got to allow them to take this responsibility, to take ownership and to be allowed to lead this in preparation. You cannot expect players to take ownership and responsibility and leadership um, just you know, by clicking your fingers on match day saying, right, you lot are in charge now. Even though I've been in charge all week, not allowed you to say anything, you're in charge today, off you go and play. And if things go wrong, then what happens next? Mm, yeah. so I, think, I think the guy at the top is going to be accountable. I think the people who play the game have got to take responsibility for their roles, uh, how they function in the game, and make sure that happens. Yeah. Um, was that another big thing that you kind of learned and developed here? Bath rugby, blimey. Yeah. Yeah, this was the... Uh, <clears throat> never been a fan of coaching the world courses um, because it always struck me that they tried to clone you. And obviously, being non-conformist, that's the worst, the last thing that I want to be 
in my life is a clone. So, but being involved with Bath Rugby from 1988, 89, I think it was, through to 96, that was an eight-year, seven, eight-year-long coaching award course for me, but in real time. It was amazing. I learned so much from that environment, from those players, about coaching and about how to how to involve players and how to listen to players, how to challenge players. Um, they were, I suppose, they're a bit like a rock and roll group, Bath Rugby. They were pretty nonconformist themselves. Um, they didn't like doing things that other teams did. They didn't like playing in the way other teams did. They always wanted to be moving on. They never liked it. They used to hate sessions that were repeated. So a session they'd done, and Jesus, they have memories like bloody elephants. You, <laughs> did, you did a session you did three weeks before that had gone particularly well, and they would remember it straight away. And I, I'll never forget uh, the night where we had one session. It had, it had gone, what I felt it had gone pretty well, and I think <clears throat> the majority of the players had as well. And as you do at the end of a session, you sort of get everyone together and say, okay, anyone got any comments? And, and <laughs> one of the team... Jerry Guscott, who was <laughs> never backward in coming forwards when he asked for comment, said, is that all you could come up with after two days of planning? He said, we did that three weeks ago. It's bloody wasting my time and walked off. <laughs> Left me stood there with a group of 22 players, most of whom were internationals from various countries, stood there, everybody looking uncomfortable, looking at the floor, no one, me thinking, geez, what do I say now? I said, well, well thanks very much, lads. <laughs> the good news was that I had to drive. It was about a 40-minute drive back to where I was teaching at the time because this was still in the amateur days. And as I was driving back, I was reflecting on what had happened and what he said, and he was absolutely spot on. He was absolutely right. Here are these guys, some of them travelling quite a distance, having done a day's work, turn up for a session at Bath Rugby, that was pretty close to repeat of something they'd done two or three weeks ago. And they'd done it successfully and done it well. So his point was, why do we still do things that we can already do? And it's a really interesting coaching point, that, because I look back then on my, when I reflected on my sort of teaching stroke coaching life, the amount of hours I must have spent teaching and coaching players in situations that they could already accomplish. Mm. just wasting the time yeah that seems a phenomenal scenario really where they're challenging you and developing you and you're challenging them and developing them because a coach with a bigger ego probably would have said right he's out the team he's there's going to be consequences you know because it's damaged their ego and embarrassed yeah. them in front of the other That's players fine. but yeah a well, good coach harnesses that and Absolutely. And one of the things I learned very quickly when I was at Bath was, you know, because, as I said, I was surrounded by players who played international rugby and some of them knew far more about some elements in the game than I did. So it would have been foolish not to engage with them. Um, was you stuck your ego in your back pocket and zipped it up for the 90 minutes you were out there. And I mean, for, for anyone who doesn't know, that was a phenomenal team, wasn't it? You know, maybe the best club team ever in England, was it, that, that I've seen, I think? Well, potentially, yeah. I mean, it was in the amateur days, so how it would compare with the Saracens team of the professional days, I don't know. But it was. It won lots of trophies. It won five, I think five or six in ten years, won five or six premiership titles, and won the National Knockout Cup seven times in ten years at Twickenham. Yeah. Something like that. So it, it did. It was very, very successful. Yeah. I had a few seasons where I watched Northampton Saints and right. I hardly ever saw them lose at Franklin's Gardens. And I right. remember Bath came and absolutely tore them to shreds. They put yeah. about 50 past them and I couldn't believe it. Really. Yeah. yeah, it was. But it was, a, it was a team that was never satisfied, always wanted to push on, push boundaries, live on the edge, play on the edge, train on the edge. Uh, and as I said right at the very start of this, that um, from, from a young... I wasn't a young coach then, but from a coaching uh, development point of view, it was probably the best environment I could have ever dropped into. Interesting. Yeah. And wh when you went into coaching, did you have an ambition or a target somewhere that you wanted to reach? Because um, yeah. obviously you reached the pinnacle yeah. within England. No. Not at all, no. I'd, I'd never even thought of being a coach. It's only 
when I started teaching, then part and parcel of the uh, the the stuff that went on at school was, was games. So I, I, I took some games and and started from there, but uh, never really sort of something that I aspired to do particularly. But um, when I went out to Italy, I spent the first year playing in Rome and I was with uh, Will Greenwood's dad, Dick Greenwood, who captained and coached England and who I played a lot of rugby with in the northwest of England. And um, he came back after the first year. So I moved on to, uh, to Milan and got appointed player coach in Milan. Now, I never coached anybody in my life, certainly at club level. And here I was coaching the Milan team in a foreign language. So that, that was pretty entertaining. Mm, yeah. So, but actually, I wouldn't say I took to it like a duck takes the water because I don't think you do with coaching. It's a long process and you never stop learning. Um, but I, I quite enjoyed it. So when I came back, I continued doing it and I got involved with the England rugby. I uh, can't remember how that happened, to be honest. I think they invited me. And by middle 1980s, I was in charge of the England, what was the England Colts team then? In the England under-19 team. And I must have done half a decent job because in 1985, when the senior team toured New Zealand, I was appointed as an assistant coach. So my first senior tour was in 1985 in New Zealand. Oh, and I've got my uh, second video, actually, I was going to show you, um, related to England. Blimey, Austin Healy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I mean, j just as a bit of a precursor, I, I don't even know Austin, but I had his number... And I've rung him and asked if he'd say something. And he, yeah, he was only too keen. So uh... well, this could be interesting because talk about Mavericks, Miami. <laughs> you're never quite sure what he's going to say. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. So I've asked him a video about Brian Ashton, Ernie, Yoda. He has some good nicknames. Um, what do you say about him? First of all, if he's listening to this, thanks very much for being a great coach. Uh, I'm sure many of my other coaches would have said that I was possibly not the um, easiest player to deal with. And I think the main reason for that was is that I didn't suffer fools gladly. And most of the coaches that I played under were pretty useless. Um, this is where Ernie stood out. And he stood out because he had the ability to mix empathy with great knowledge and understanding. And that empathy meant that it was never his agenda to be the name, the coach, the face, the tracksuit. His agenda, or his goal, I believe, was always to bring out the best in backs. And he certainly managed that. And I just feel like if rugby had had more voices like his that pushed the need of the back uh, as part of a, a team approach, then we wouldn't see the imbalance that we see today between forwards and backs. Forwards have got way too much power now. Way too much power in the design of the game and the nature of the game. Backs train all week, the same amount of time, but they get a quarter amount of the ball and a quarter amount of usage in the game, other than chasing kicks. And Ernie saw this years ago. He was light years ahead of his time. And probably the only thing he missed out on as a coach was an utter ruthlessness to kick all the other coaches in the spuds. Because the other coaches had it, and they would more than happily do it to him to get their own way. For me, Brian Ashton was the best rugby coach I've ever worked with. Forwards, backs, head coach, defence coach, massa, anything. He's the best and the best in class. And it's been my privilege to have known him and worked with him. Good luck, Ern. See ya. Nice start, isn't it? Yeah. I'm not sure about the best massa. <laughs> um, I'm not sure we should go down that track. <laughs> <laughs> he, but, he made uh, a lot of good points, didn't he, in just a sort of two-minute clip there? Yeah, he did. I mean, and he admitted it himself. He's not everyone's cup of tea, Austin. He, again, was a, a very controversial and challenging player. Uh, if he didn't like something, then he would he would challenge you about it. And, you know, quite rightly so, too. You know, guys that play get selected to play rugby at international level are right at the top of the tree. And if they feel there's a better way of doing things or we're not doing it the right way, then why shouldn't they have a voice? You know, we're all in there, as, as he sort of alluded to, to help, things, to help the team get better. Interesting. One of the interesting things about Austin was, and he was a massively underrated player. Um, I think he started in every single back position. I think he started internationally. He started at nine, I know that, at scrum half. He started at fly half. There was a famous test match in South Africa in 2000, the first test. 
we played in Johannesburg and Johnny Wilkinson dropped out in the warm-up. He got injured in the warm-up and there was a bit of a panic on and the question was, who's going to play fly-off? Because we had a young fly-off, Ali Hefer, who, um, who's now coaching and he's done a fantastic coaching job at Exeter Chiefs. Mm-hmm. And he was there, but I'm not all that convinced he was even changed. I don't think it's in the match day squad. Um, so with who's going to play? And Austin, being Austin, said, I'll play. I'll play number 10. <laughs> he played 10 a couple of times for Leicester. <laughs> and, and he typical, you know, I mean, that is a massive call. Playing against South Africa in Johannesburg. <laughs> 45 minutes before, <laughs> yeah, I'll play number 10. And, and he played number and he played. In, he played number 10 in Austin Healy's way. And there was a classic moment where South Africa had been attacking our line. for It felt like an eternity. And suddenly we got a penalty 10 metres from our own line. And everybody in the coaching box all said, oh, thank goodness, sorry, that sigh of relief. Thank goodness we've weathered the storm. And suddenly Austin grabs the ball, taps it and starts running when everybody thought he's going to kick it off the field, we're going to have a bit of respite. But it's interesting because when I... and Anyway, we'd scored at the other end, but it was the first try ever in the history of rugby disallowed by video ref. And it was a clear try. The video ref was South African. And I think they pulled him in off the street at the last minute. <laughs> I don't think he knew anything about rugby, otherwise he would have awarded it. But the interesting thing was, we'd started... I'd been preaching to, to Austin... And we've been talking about um, countering pressure with pressure. So if you've been under pressure, the best thing you can do is counter and put pressure straight back on the opposition. So he'd obviously taken that message on board and done it, and done it incredibly successfully. We were horrified in the coaching box when he tapped and went. We were all screaming, what the hell is he doing? You know, and what he was doing, actually, was following the message that I was trying to get onto that. But I, even I was thinking, geez, Austin, this is not the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. But it was, yeah. Um, and he was a very talented player, and uh, well, yeah. Mm. And it, it's interesting there because yeah. he he had an incredible career, Austin, at club and international level, and Lions, I think, as well. But he says you're the best coach he's ever worked with. In yeah. Full stop. Um, Did you have to pay but, him to say that? <laughs> no, not at all. No. All right. But it was quite interesting what he said as well, because I know you're very, very modest. And he said, maybe that, you know, he said that ruthlessness to kind of kick other people out of the way. Um, I wondered, it's hard for you to say, but have you had the credit you deserve because you don't have that ego and you don't shout about yourself and push other people out of the way? Do you know, I've no idea whether I've got the credit I deserve or not. And to be honest with you, I don't care. I know what I've done. People I've coached know what I've done. I didn't get on with everyone, um, but I think that's just the nature of life. Not every player liked the way I coached, just as I didn't like a lot of the way some of the players played. Um, But that's just the way that life is. But what I've never believed in, and I think this is a real danger since the game went professional, is, um, and I was talking to Wayne Smith, who's an ex-All Blacks coach about this, not that long ago, and uh, is the emergence of the culture of the coach. The game's not about the coach. The game's not about the manager. The game's about the players. They're the guys that go into the battle arena. They're the guys that operate in the heat of battle. They're the guys that make decisions with their technical, physical, game intelligence or mental ones in that 80 or 90 minutes plus that ultimately are going to decide how the game unfolds. Uh, you know, um, for me, you need to recognise that. Yeah. Dave Redding, who I know you work with for England Rugby, he had quite a good phrase calling it the unicorn coach, where right. we expect them to have all the answers. Yeah. They get paid 20 times more than anyone else. Ridiculous. Um, yeah. 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 I mean, I would never, ever... One of the things that interests me about coaching, certainly in the rugby world, is the proliferation of specialist coaches. Jeez, you know, you open a drawer now and a specialist coach drops out. And they all want the time. They all sort of... And the danger of giving mixed messages is obviously there, even even unconsciously. Um, and I, I wonder... I asked Stuart Lancaster, who obviously coached England as well and is doing a fantastic job at Leinster, 
this about this time last year it was, we're having a chat over the over Zoom. I said, where have all the rugby coaches gone, Stuart? He said, what are you talking about? I said, we've got attack coaches, defence coaches, scrum coaches, line-out, kicking coaches, mm-hmm. um, coaches for this, like Austin mentioned, coaches for this, coaches for that. I said, where are the rugby coaches gone? And I think with all the analysis that's come into the game now and all the specialism that's come into the game, there's a real danger of the game becoming very disjointed. It's a very complex game, rugby, anyway. Mm. And, you know, and it's hard to fit it all together. But the more specialism it strikes me within the coaching team, the, le- the more difficult that might become. Yeah. I mean, and something you've talked about a lot is the cohesive coaching. It is the yeah. key, bringing it all together yeah. in one session and all being unified rather than in silos. Yeah. So, I, well, the point I was going to go on to make, and sorry, I've, I've forgotten. You know, thanks for reminding me. Yeah. It's a fact. So, you know, at the top levels of the game, and even further down than that, with at a reasonable level of any sport, you know, the players have a certain amount of knowledge. And it's actually good for them now and again to be in charge of a session. So let's say the fours decide they want a scrummaging session. Well, let them run it. I can remember when I played back in the 1970s for Lancashire, the guy that ran the scrummaging sessions was a prop four called Frank Cotton. Cotton, who played for England on any number of occasions, who captained England, who went on Lions tours, etc., who was phenomenally knowledge, really bright rugby brain, and he could he could take sessions like that. Mm. Um, so, but we seem to—I don't know—the coach seems to be seems to have become far more important. Maybe. Did you see a change in the academies when you go in and visit for your mentoring? Yeah, I think there's been a noticeable change over the uh, over the years. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, certainly. You know, I would say that there is more player engagement than there was when I first went in, and more more players allowed to take more responsibility for what happens in in preparation, in practice, uh, and given more responsibility and given more ownership, and be asked to lead certain sessions of the practice. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the interesting thing is, though, and I can remember when I first started going down this route, you can give players the opportunity to take responsibility, ownership, leadership, but if something goes wrong, you still blow that bloody whistle that's round your neck. So actually, you're not giving them the chance at all. You know, you're not giving them the opportunities to actually fail when they're in charge, but also fix it at the same time. You know, and my mentor has got a Great phrase. He talks about uh, in any situation in life, you know, if you've just you fail fat. If you if if you really want to push on in life, you've got to push the boundaries, which means at some point something's going to go wrong. So you fail fast, you learn fast, you fix fast. Right. Kevin Roberts, your Kevin Roberts, yeah. And in a sporting context, that is particularly important because the games don't last that long. Mm. Yeah, so you can't be repeating the same mistake over and over again. No, yeah, no. Kevin Roberts, who ex-world chief exec Sarch in Sarchi, fellow member of the Black Sheep Club of the Old Lancastrians, because three years after I left the school, he got expelled as well. How did he? But we both went on to be relatively successful in our sphere, so we formed the Black Sheep Club. Yeah, yeah. Old definitely. Lancastrian Society, yeah. Are you, what did Kevin get expelled for, are you able to say? Uh, yeah, I had an unfortunate incident with a head girl of uh, local grammar school, I think. Right, OK. We'll leave that there. Yeah, I was just wondering, actually, um, with England, you took England to a World Cup final with a team that was certainly wasn't as strong as the previous World Cup, I think it's fair to say. Um, but, but then you didn't last long afterwards. Is there anything you would change about that time if you, you went there again? No, no. I mean, I, my leadership was questioned by some people in the time I was in charge of England, but I've always been a big believer in that. Hopefully it sort of, it sort of explains itself, this after what we talked about, in situational leadership. You lead according to the situation you find yourself in. So Sometimes you can be very direct and confrontational. Other times you just step back and let things happen. And a lot of it does depend on the situation. And other times, you, and the best leaders and the best coaches and managers move up and down that continuum of being hands-on and hands-off, et cetera, depending mm-hmm. on what the particular situation and the group of people they've got around them. 
Um, so, no, there's nothing I would change. Um, I'd only been in the job for the 2000. I'd only, we'd only had five, five to, I think it was eight, eight games, and three of those were sort of warm-up games. They weren't real test matches. I'd had five real test matches um, before the tournament began. And so it was a case of learning on the hoof, as it were, not, not as a head coach, but uh, finding out the best way to approach the situation. Yeah. Um, so I, I went with it and something must have been right because we got to a final and nearly won it. Yeah, and your last game was a, it was the Ireland game, wasn't it, in the Six Stations where Danny had a... Oh, he made his debut, I think. Game. Game. Yeah, yeah, and we beat Ireland for the first time in five years, 33-10, I think it was. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that was it. Yeah, so I remember uh, a couple of years after that, when Stuart Lancaster had, had a bit of a tough time, um, I phoned him up. I said, you've got Ireland next at Twickenham, haven't you? He said, yeah. I said, just be careful. So if you beat them too heavily, that could be a death knell for you. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. Happened. That's what happened to me. Yeah. I wonder if having a, a big ego almost protects you in that sort of job, because you've got a some you know cultivate the media potentially manage yeah. up and cultivate your boss and the yeah. council or whatever probably yeah. a lot of nonsense really but well it might be yeah but i think it, it, it might be important that and i wasn't very good at oh, i wasn't very good i probably could have been good at it but i wasn't good at it because i wasn't interested the only thing i was interested in were the players nothing else simple as that oh well, fantastic thanks brian fascinating as ever Okay, I've uh, enjoyed it, Simon. Thanks a lot for having me on your on your podcast. Thank you for listening to the Training Ground Guru podcast in association with Huddle. We'll be back in a few weeks with another episode. In the meantime, you can follow our latest updates on the website and on Twitter at ground underscore guru.